Cheryl and I have these conversations from time to time. I bounce things off of her and I ask her advice and her opinion, her her thoughts as she listens, especially to teaching. I always tell her it must be so weird being married to me. I mean, for a variety of reasons, but I'm talking specifically about, you know, you're in services every Sunday on Wednesdays and you're listening to your husband teach the Bible and that just must be strange. And uh, we have these conversations. I'm always asking her, so what did you hear? What did you learn? You know, did, did I explain that well enough? And um, she has shared with me, we were talking this last week, and she said, you know, you, you can sometimes have a tendency to geek out on Greek and Hebrew words. Thank you. Thank you, my public. <laughs> Well, what we were talking about is what we're going to discuss this morning. We're going to get technical. We have to get technical before we can get practical. And so I'm telling you ahead of time, pay attention, dial in, listen closely. Because this is one of those times where it's not just Rick geeking out, where the distinction between specific words that we're going to look at is vital to our understanding. In fact, it radically altered my perspective on something. I hadn't seen it this way before. So I hope we can see that together. <clears throat> I will do my best to, to explain it clearly. You do your best to stay, to stay locked in with me. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. You know there are 66 books in the Bible. There's just one revelation. Just one. The revelation of Jesus Christ. There are, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches historically, across seven epochs of the church prophetically, and yet seven letters to just one church corporately. All of us together. That is to say, every one of these seven letters speak to us now, this fellowship, and in the church right now in the world. And every one of the seven letters speak to one person, that is you. Or, or to me. We are to take these things personally. And it's too easy sometimes to look at a particular church and say, wow, that was historical Ephesus. Or that was historical Thyatira. It doesn't really apply to me. Or that was prophetic Thyatira. I wasn't raised in that tradition or with that group. Therefore, it doesn't apply to me. I encourage you never to listen to the words of Jesus as for someone else. But to always take them as intended for you, as I do for me. Beginning in verse 18, let's read the whole letter to the church at Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds or of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. By the way, note, I mentioned this Wednesday, this is the first time in the letters where Jesus uses the phrase, until I come. This is the first church that Jesus implies will be in play, in operation, when He comes, because they have to be able to hold fast until He comes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Though the representation of Thyatira must be in the world now, as well as previously, for them to hold fast all the way until He comes. He who overcomes, verse 26, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. 
and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord Jesus, give us an ear to hear. Help us understand. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us a clarity in the technical things so that you can bring our hearts, Lord, to the practical things. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus made a promise. John wrote it down that He has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. You made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God and we will reign on the earth. And in this letter to Thyatira, here in what we're calling the P.S., the postscript, the end of the letter, Jesus confirms that we will indeed have authority in the coming kingdom. It's a marvelous promise. Really kind of cool if you think about it. Some who have never had authority in their entire lives, you're going to be in charge. We will be in the government of Jesus to rule and reign over all the nations on the earth, a kingdom of priests. We'll be ambassadors and and governors and mayors and no election officials. Not a single one necessary because there will be no elections. Jesus is king. Just one ruler and one government of his appointment. And he wants, listen, he wants, get this, he wants to appoint you. Are you ready? Are you ready to rule? Some can't wait. Some need to. This whole idea of ruling and reigning with Jesus, honestly, there are those who are already hungry for such power and position, and they probably have a bit of preparation yet to do. When I get all high and mighty and thinking all, you know, that I'm all that, those are the days where I need some drawing down. But you know, there are a lot of people, especially in the church of this age, who can wait. People saying, not yet, Jesus. I'm not ready. I'm not capable. People who, and perhaps it's you, say, what do I have to offer? I mean, really? A kingdom of priests? I can barely manage my own life. What do I have to offer a ruling class of the entire world? I've got nothing to bring. And I know some of you feel that way because I've had that conversation. Maybe you feel like David. He was probably a teenager, 17, 18, 19 years old, laying out in the fields just outside of Bethlehem, sheep nearby, quietly feeding, as he looked up at the night sky and he wrote Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you care for him? David's blown away by the majesty of the universe and just says, who am I in all of this? I'm a speck. How is it that you even think of someone like me? And I think sometimes, who am I that I should rule and govern with Jesus? That I should be in that holy governmental force on the earth? I mean, am I ready for that? Are you ready for that? I mean, really, really ready? That's a big goal. And they say sometimes when you have a big goal out in front of you, it's better to focus on more manageable goals. You know, baby steps. Just little baby stepping to the kingdom. Baby stepping. Just baby steps. So here's a different question. Rather than are you ready for the kingdom, are you ready for Thanksgiving? It's Thursday, you know. It's coming up this week. Do you have your Costco turkey? Have you already purchased the cornbread for the stuffing and the potatoes for the mashing and the marshmallows for the yamming? Cranberries for the saucing? <laughs> you know, do you have the crispy little onion straws that go on top of the green beans? I love that. They're, they're so perky. The, the pies. Who's bringing the pies? Let's make sure we've got this. Now, you may not think this is important, but to me... These are matters of great import. At this time, and, and if you go back and listen to previous Thanksgiving teachings that we've had here at the Bridge, I think I've gone over the, the uh, menu pretty much every year to make sure that everyone in my family knows what we need to have on the table. You know, make sure we're covered for these things. Let's not forget this week 
by the way, the most important thing you can bring to the table, and that is thanksgiving. Your thanksgiving, your eucharisteo in the Greek. The giving of thanks. And, and I, I want to say this again, best way to make preparation for that is to be here Wednesday night. Get your heart ready. Come on out Wednesday night. Let's worship Jesus together. Let's thank God. Let's get our hearts ready so that when we go into the day, it's not about the turkey and the stuffing and the guests and the insanity. It's just about, it's just about Thanksgiving. Wow. This week, we have a crazy full house. I used to look forward to this kind of thing. When I was younger, I thought, boy, it'd be great someday and have the grandkids and have it. just have the house just brimming with people. And right now, I'm not so sure. <laughs> we got like 20 people showing up. We've got Cheryl and me, and we've got the home kids and the grown kids and the grandkids and the in-laws and the outlaws. And we have some out-of-town friends coming in, and it's just, it's kind of nuts. And I was thinking about this, and we were adding up the numbers the other day, and I went, wait a minute. This isn't going to be cheap. I'm cheap, but this is not going to be cheap. And so I pulled Cheryl aside and I said, Hey, um, just, I'm just wondering, what are the guests bringing? You know, I, I want to know what they're bringing. Should we have a cover charge? Maybe that would be a good idea. You know, Five bucks at the door, come on in, we got your turkey and stuffing and everything ready to go. I really wanted to know, what are they bringing to my table? And that's the question before us this morning. When it comes to the kingdom, what are you bringing to the table? What do you have to offer Jesus? What do you have to give? What do I have that I should rule or reign in His glorious kingdom? And at the end of this letter, Jesus tells us. And I want to think this through with you this morning. The historical church at Thyatira, we talked about uh, on Wednesday night. It was set in that small, blue-collar union town, a town of trade guilds. Not a big town, in fact, compared to the other seven cities that received letters in the Revelation. It's pretty insignificant. They had a a purple dye that they made there, and they had fabrics and textiles that that they made and and imported, exported. But it was, other than that, insignificant by comparison to the size and the scope of the rest of the cities. But you know what? Thyatira, historical Thyatira, knew the value of hard work. They knew how to get the job done. Same with prophetical Thyatira. And again, as we talked about, when you look at the overlay of these letters across the church age, across church history of 2,000 years, from about 606 A.D. all the way up to present day, the the prophetical church of Thyatira, the Roman Catholic church, knows the value of hard work. They know how to get the job done. Show me a church system in all of history that has worked harder than the Roman Catholic Church. Are you commending Catholicism? Yeah, because Jesus does. He does in this letter. And the first thing He says in verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. And you could say that about Catholicism. When you look at relief and charitable organizations in the world today, there's over a thousand for the Roman Catholic Church. Hospitals and, and orphanages and inner city missions and schools and homeless shelters and humanitarian relief Roman Catholicism has been a a working church that knows how to get the job done. And Jesus even says in His commendation, and your deeds of late are even better than they were at first. They're redoubling their efforts. They're working harder now than ever before. That's wonderful. That kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul. The end of his life when he said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.7, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith, and in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And you might say, Well, great for you, Paul. I read about your life. I saw what you did. I read the book of Acts. I know how much impact Paul has had on the church. Of course, he's going to get a crown of righteousness. Of course, he's going to show up at the kingdom and he's got something to bring to the table. But Paul also said, listen, not only to me, not only is God going to give me the crown of righteousness, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's too easy. 
Isn't that too easy? Wait, I get a crown of righteousness if I just love His appearing? If I'm just excited that Jesus is coming? If I'm just on that day like, yes, this is it, I get a crown of righteousness? Boom, baby, I can do that. But there are many people who think, okay, that's nice to say, but again, it is too simple. It really should be you get a crown of righteousness if you work the good deeds of righteousness by the sweat of your brow. Those are the people who should get the crown. The Pauls, the workers. Roman Catholicism, man, do the work. It's too simple to say otherwise. Cardinal Robert Bellarmine would agree with you on that if you feel like it's too simple. Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, he lived uh, 1542 to 1621. He was Pope Clement VIII's personal theologian. And he was one of the most staunch figures of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. What's that? Well, we'll talk about Wednesday night. We're going to get into the Reformation and the Reformed Church. In fact, it's the Church of Sardis. I'll just tell you ahead of time. The next letter goes out to the Church of the Reformation that Jesus calls the Dead Church. So if anyone was offended on Wednesday night with our look at Roman Catholicism, just wait till this Wednesday. The Dead Church. But at that time, when the Reformation began to, to brightly flame, and people were getting back to their Bibles, and changes were being made, and Martin Luther tacked up his theses on the, on the Wittenberg door. Again, things we'll talk about Wednesday night. It was an exciting time of change and, and a radical movement, and there was a counter-Reformation movement in the Roman Catholic Church fighting back against the Reformation. Well, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine at that time was famous for saying this, quote, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Let me say that again. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. As a good Catholic himself, he's saying, you know, if you already know that you're saved, if you're assured of your salvation, why would you work for it? Why would you do anything? There goes the labor force. How are we going to get stuff done? Who would volunteer? How are we going to get the church built? Hey, hey, listen, Psalm 110 verse 3, the Lord already made clear, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. His power. And Jesus said so clearly in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. It's my church to build. It's my strength that will get it done. Remember Zechariah 4, 6, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The problem with seeking eternal assurance by labor, the problem with that, aside from it being a pagan mindset, Do you realize that's a pagan mindset? That the pagans had to bring sacrifice, and the pagans had to bring offering, and the pagans had to continue to do certain works to make sure that they had good luck, or that the gods would be pleased with them, or that they might have some kind of assurance for the future. They had to continually give the pinch of the incense, or the sacrifice of the animal, or go engage in immorality with the temple prostitutes. You just had to do these things to get the job done. That's a pagan mindset. And the problem with assurance by labor is very simply this. It's all about me. It's all about what Rick can do. Or what you can accomplish. My good deeds, my good works, my checklist, my self-righteousness. And the reason why anyone hears Jesus say, you're going to rule and reign with me, i got a crown of righteousness for you. The reason why anyone at that point would go, I don't know if I'm ready, is because you don't think you've done enough. You don't think you've worked hard enough. You don't think you have something to bring to the table. Did you do enough to merit eternal salvation, much less a kingdom? Did you go to confession? I was talking to a a brother on Wednesday night. And he said, boy, the thing for me, he was raised Catholic, and he said, by the time I left the confessional and was headed to my car, I had to turn around and go right back in. How can you ever confess enough of your sin to be free of it? Did you pray the rosary? Did you keep the sacraments or light the candles or or attend the Mass or pray to the saints or worship the Queen of Heaven? Mary. You see, we talked about this Wednesday night. The Bible calls out the Queen of Heaven as being Ashtaroth. 
Roman Catholicism calls Mary the Queen of Heaven. There's only one Queen of Heaven, and that's the pagan deity, and not Mary. Another conversation, you can go back and listen to that teaching. But this letter now comes and is directed very pointedly from, note it, the Son of God back in verse 18, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. And I'm telling you, that's not how you want Jesus to show up at your door. We're to come for Thanksgiving this week. You open the door and He's standing there, feet of bronze and eyes on fire, and I don't think that's how you want to see Jesus. Because He comes as a judge. And after commending Catholic Thyatira, for their deeds, Jesus turns around and lays down His most severe criticism of any of the seven letters, even to the point of condemnation. Wait, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Exactly. So if you're not in Christ Jesus, there will be condemnation. He's not messing around here. Especially when it comes to embracing idolatry and immorality and goddess worship and ungodly human power structures, which was the problem, not in Thyatira historically so much as in Thyatira prophetically, because the Roman Catholic Church wielded great power, undeniably wielded great power, sometimes brutal power, especially during the Dark Ages, about the 5th century up to the, to the 15th century. We call it the Dark Ages. That's when the Roman Catholic Church ruled. By the end of 300 and 398, Roman Catholicism became the church religion of the state of Rome. And with that kind of power beginning to to wield that power, it's fascinating to me that Jesus turns around and in this letter, the promise He makes is for He who overcomes and keeps my deeds until the end, to Him I will give authority over the nations. What is that but power? See, I I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, Thankfully, I'm not the Lord. But I, I would have given the power promise to Smyrna, the suffering church. Hey, you're suffering now, I'm going to put you into power. Or maybe Philadelphia. We'll get to Philadelphia, the mission church. Hey, you're out there, you're bringing the gospel all over the world. Boy, you're going to rule and reign with me. He doesn't do that. He goes to the church that wielded the most power in all of church history and says, and to you, if you overcome, I'm going to give you authority, power to rule. Why do you do that, Lord? It makes this promise, to me at least, very intriguing. This promise to rule. Now, remember the previous promises. The previous three PSs that we've looked at. Ephesus, in verse 7 of chapter 2, overcome lovelessness, gain the tree of life in the garden of God. That's beautiful. To Smyrna, in verse 11, overcome suffering, and you gain the crown of life, and immunity from the second death. Again, marvelous. To Pergamos, verse 17, overcome compromise. And you'll gain, as we talked about last Sunday, the hidden manna and the white stone and the new name written on the stone which only you and Jesus know. Really, really cool. But to the church of Thyatira, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star and I I read that and I think wow I mean that's power that's clout authority and rule and that's the promise now listen carefully if you believe today as the Roman Catholic Church believed in that age in those ages If you believe right now that we are already in the kingdom, then you might start to act with this kind of ruling power. What do you mean? I mean, if we really thought the church was in the kingdom and the kingdom is here now, then shouldn't we be ruling and reigning with a rod of iron? Shouldn't we be kicking in some teeth? You know, breaking a few skulls, fighting the good fight being mighty and high and powerful in the world for Jesus, if we believe the kingdom is right now, shouldn't we be doing that? Well, remember that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
Which is why this pre-kingdom, humble, godly training is so important. I, I said earlier, those who hunger for power and prominence and position right now, you still have some preparation to do. We need to be taken down a few notches. We need to learn, and part of what's going on in this pre-kingdom era is that we are learning how to be humble servants of the Lord. Now, some of you here, I I, I know, have already lived a humble life. Quietly, doing your best, never having a name splashed on the page, never being seen as as any more than just, you know, you're just living a humble life. And i got to tell you, you have such great value for the kingdom. Such great value. I think you'll understand this in just a moment. But listen to this. Jesus is dealing with the twelve. And on one afternoon in particular, James and John, Yaakov and John, the brothers of the sons of of Zebedee, they come to Jesus with a request. Now, depending on which version of this story you read, it's either the bros who come to Jesus for the request or mama does. Either way, the family wants James and John to have good positions in the kingdom. So they come up to Jesus, and this is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. I'll just read you the story. They say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, wisely, Jesus responds, What do you want me to do for you? See, that's like when my kids come up and say, Dad, I want you to do what I, what, I, want, you to do what I want to do. Well, you tell me first what you want to do, and then we'll talk about whether or not I'm going to allow it. So Jesus responds that way. What is it that you're wanting? And they say, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. And they're thinking, kingdom. In the establishment of your kingdom, your rule in this world, we want to sit to the right and the left. We want to be in the high seats. We want to be in the power positions. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? By the way, that's the cup of God's wrath. Are you able to drink that cup? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, which would be the baptism of His blood? Are you able to go through what... You have no idea what you're asking, He's saying. Of course, they said to Him, We are able. That's always what we think. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. You're going to go through hard times. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. There will be someone to the right and to the left of Jesus in the kingdom. We just don't know who that's going to be. I have some suggestions, but it's all guessing, so I'm just going to keep it to myself. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with Yaakov and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, your diakonos, where we get the word deacon. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. That word is doulos. It is the lowest form of servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. See, that's the right mentality for the idea of ruling and reigning in the coming kingdom. It's a mentality of servitude, of humility. Servant priests in the coming kingdom of God. But with that in mind, when you go back to Revelation and hear him again say, To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. I read that and think, doesn't sound humble. It sounds powerful. And depending on my mood, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to rule. But it doesn't sound like the attitude that He has continued to call forth from His followers. Humility, meekness, servitude. So what's going on here? First of all, note that He has the authority. So Jesus has the authority to give the authority. He has every right to tell you that He's got a place for you to rule and to reign because He Himself is the ruler. He said, Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he has the right to rule. 
He said in John 5.22, not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, stay with me on this. This is where it gets technical. That wasn't technical? No, this is. He's quoting Psalm 2. So I want you to keep a finger in Revelation 2 and turn back to Psalm 2. It's roughly in the middle of your Bible. Maybe a little bit to the left. Psalm 2, the second Psalm. Again, finger in Revelation 2 and then turn to Psalm 2 because you need to be able to flip back and forth and look and compare what he is quoting. It's important this morning. I remind you as you're turning there that the New Testament is primarily written in Greek. It's a Greek translation that we have. We have it in English, but it comes from the Greek texts. And it was written in the Greek and mostly spoken in the Greek or in some cases Aramaic. You need to understand also that all of the quotes in the New Testament from the Old Testament are out of... Anyone know? The Septuagint. The Septuagint. I told you we get technical. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'll explain more about that in a minute. So we're reading in Revelation 2 the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew, which is what we get in Psalm 2. Listen to Psalm 2. Pick it up in about verse 6. As for me, God speaking, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Talking about the begottenness of Jesus, which Paul tells us later was his resurrection, not his birth. His resurrection is the begottenness that is talked about here. And verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, to the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Quickly, go back to Revelation 2 and compare it. Psalm 2, you shall break them with a rod of iron. What does it say in Revelation 2? He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Well, that's different. Break or rule. Which one is it? Now, again, this can partially be explained. Because the Hebrew Scriptures in most of our Bibles come from what's called the Masoretic Text. That's a Hebrew text that was translated to English starting around the 7th to the 10th century A.D. Okay, so after Christ, later into already the 7th to the 10th century, already into the church age, the Hebrew translation called the Masoretic Text was then translated into English, and that's your Old Testament. We have some older text, but not complete text. That's the only, the, the, the oldest complete text we have of the Old Testament in the Hebrew is the Masoretic. And so that's why that's the one used, and it's the one used in most Jewish Bibles today. Masoretic Text. Alright? As I said, the New Testament quotes from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation from the original Hebrew, and that was accomplished 300 years before Jesus. So you have the Septuagint, and then almost a thousand years later, the completed Masoretic text. Masoretic text is the Hebrew Scriptures that we have today. The Septuagint are all of the quotes that we see. And you can get a Septuagint Hebrew Scripture as well, but it's Hebrew to Greek to English, as opposed to just Hebrew to English. Are you with me? I know this is just language stuff, but it's important to understand. People will look at those, and I pointed this out before, when you are reading in the New Testament, and you read a quote from the Old Testament, and then you go back to the Old Testament, and it's... In essence, the same, but slightly different. The reason is the New Testament is from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, whereas the Old Testament is just the Hebrew translation to English. Okay? So there's going to be some slight discrepancies. Usually the meaning is so obvious in both that you go, okay, it's just a difference of translation. Now this starts to make people uncomfortable, and critics of the Bible would say, see, it contradicts. Well, it's not contradicting. Well, see, it's not, it's not solid, but, but you know, you've got your translations. How do you know what the real Word of God is? You know what's remarkable to me? It's not the alleged discrepancies. It is the acute agreement of all the Scriptures that we have. 
It is remarkable to me to realize and to think about the fact that the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures from 300 years before Jesus and the Masoretic text, that is the Hebrew translation to English that came seven to 800 years after Jesus, that both of these are remarkably accurate together. Then you throw in the Dead Sea Scrolls that came a thousand years or a thousand years old at the time of Christ, and we look at those things. Wow, okay, that that's specific. The the word holds up. So so trust me in that the, the word holds up. But it's important you understand this. Because when we look at Psalm 2 and we look at Revelation 2, we have this one word, he shall rule them, Revelation 2, with a rod of iron, and then Psalm 2. He shall break them with a rod of iron. Two different words. Let me take you a little further on this. Break them versus rule them. Break them in Psalm 2. Rule them in Revelation 2. Both indicate power, right? I mean, both indicate the right to judge. Jesus has the right to break, the right to rule, okay? So break and rule, that they're closely related, but they're still not the same. i got to make this a little more problematic for you, because when you read the actual word used for rule in Revelation 2.27, it's not rule. In fact, it gets even further away. What do you mean? When you're in the New Testament, and this is just for you Bible students, there is a word for rule. The word is arxē. Arxē. It's the common word that is translated rule. We see it translated in, in different places, arxay, but that's not the word that is used here. It should be if we're using the word rule. He shall arxay them with a rod of iron, but that's not the word there. Okay? This word that's translated rule is, shows up 12 times in the New Testament, and it's only translated rule three times. The other nine times, it's translated what I believe, and you'll see, to be correctly. But it's translated rule here. And then in Revelation 12, verse 5, it's translated rule again. She gave birth to a son, a male, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And the child was caught up to God and to his throne, talking about Jesus, who will rule. And that word is also the same word that's used here. It's also, in Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So three times it's translated rule. Are you with me? Okay, don't let it glaze over. I know we're not in a college class here, but it's important. Three times it's translated rule, but this word, the other nine times, is translated differently And it's a word that some of you may remember or be familiar with. The word in Revelation 2 for rule is poimano. It's where we get our word pastor. Why? Because it's translated everywhere else in in the New Testament, shepherd. That's very different. He shall shepherd them with a rod of iron. If I read it that way, as they would have heard it, as Thyatira receiving this letter would have read, he will shepherd him with a rod of iron, any good Bible student at that time would go, wait a minute, that's different than Psalm. The Psalm 2 verse 9 says he will break them with a rod of iron, and you're telling us he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. That, that, that's too different just to be, you know, Septuagint to Masoretic. That's too different. What's going on there? This same word that is translated shepherd nine other times in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, quoting Micah. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Out of you will come forth a ruler, Arxe, who will shepherd, poimano, my people Israel. Or John 21, 16. Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. Again, poimano. That's not rule my sheep, it's shepherd my sheep. Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, another example. The Lord in the center of the throne will be their poimano, their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So what's the deal here? Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to give you the right to poimano them, to shepherd them with a rod of iron, whereas 
Psalm 2 verse 9 says, break them with a rod of iron. What is that about? Oh, maybe, maybe that's, that's that story. You know how the shepherd will break the, the leg of a, of a lamb that wanders off so that while the leg's healing, it has to stay with the shepherd and then it never wanders off again? Have you, have you heard that? That's a lovely little devotional thought, and that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> break, shepherd, how does this work? Let me push it just a little bit further, because I, I can sense that you're all really with me right now. In, in the Hebrew of Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, the Hebrew word there is ra'ah. Rule. He shall, or break, actually. He will break them with a rod of iron. Ra'ah. Break. However, in the Hebrew, there is another ra'ah. Same exact letters. Ra'ah and ra'ah. The only difference between the two words is what they call the nikud. Those little jots. You know, those, those little marks. Because the Hebrew language is all consonants. And so the only way they know the vowel sounds is they put little marks. They're called nikud. Little marks on those, and that gives you the sense of the direction of the word. So two words in the Hebrew language, ra'ah and ra'ah, and the only difference between them is where the little marks are. Guess what? Ra'ah in Psalm 2.9, which means break them, depending on where the marks are, there is another ra'ah with the little marks differently that is translated shepherd. Micah 7.14, Ra'ah, shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession. Now I only tell you that to say that what, what the higher critics and some scholars do is they say, oh, well see, that's, that's why, that's why it's poimano, that's why it's shepherd in the New Testament. Because in the Older Testament, they must have had the marks in the wrong place. You see what I'm saying? That a scribe came along at some point and was translating Ra'ah and Ra'ah and when he got to Ra'ah in Psalm 2.9 he, maybe he spilled the ink. You know, oh, I'm just going to send it out like that. You know. or, or maybe he just wasn't paying attention so he got the nikud, the marks, the jots in the wrong place and therefore what is break in Psalm 2.9 really ought to be shepherd or maybe it really should be Break and, and they messed it up when they were translating into the New Testament. It's a scribal error. When a critic or when a scholar cannot figure something out, they love to say scribal error. I don't think God makes scribal errors. I think He keeps His word exactly as He intends His word to be. What does all this mean? Listen, Jesus knew what He was saying. When we read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, and this is where it starts to get wholly practical, Jesus intended to say, and He shall shepherd them with a rod of iron. Not rule. Yeah, but Rick, Psalm 2 says, break exactly. Listen closely. Psalm 2 is about Jesus. Revelation 2 is about you. In Psalm 2, it's the Messianic Psalm of the anointed Christ, and He shall break them with a rod of iron. He has every right to. In fact, it's what I would call His right to smite. Jesus has the right to smite. Why? Because Isaiah 11.4 says, With righteousness He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth... And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. He has the right to smite because he will do it right. He's perfect in his judgment and in his wisdom and in his understanding. He has the right to smite. Psalm 110 verse 6, he will judge among the nations and will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will break them with a rod of iron. What is the rod of iron, by the way? It's truth. It's the absolute, unbending, unwieldy truth. The righteousness of God. Even the word coming out of His mouth. The rod of His mouth is the truth that Jesus speaks. And again, Revelation 19.15, From His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. See, that's what Jesus can do. That's what He has every right to do, the right to smite. What about you and me? Listen, in Revelation 2.27, 
what he's offering here to those who overcome Thyatira is what I would call our need to feed. Psalm 2 is about Jesus. Revelation 2 is an offer to you. And we have the need to feed. He has the right to smite. We have the need to feed. What are you saying? That we are not breakers. We are feeders. That the role of those who come into the holy government of Jesus in the, in the kingdom, we don't come in to break people with the rod of iron. We come to feed and to shepherd the sheep. Because He has the right and the authority and the power and the wisdom to smite. We do not. That's not ours. Think about this with me. Following the breaking of this world, He will break them with a rod of iron. There is a seven year tribulation period during which Jesus will break this world. Where the wrath of God is poured out on rebellious, Christ-rejecting humanity. But after that, something happens. After that, those who overcome the Thyatira problem, those who hold fast what we have until He comes, we will then be given the right to rule, but not to break. No, the right to shepherd the sheep. Poimano means to feed, as in feeding the sheep, shepherding the sheep. Well, wait a minute. What sheep? What sheep indeed? Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus gives a parable. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. I'll tell you ahead of time, it's not good news for the goats. They will not go into the kingdom. But the sheep? The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When do we see you hungry and feed you? When do we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger or invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Listen, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, This seems like it's all about deeds, doesn't it? If you fed the hungry and gave drink to the thirsty and you visited those in prison and you you tended to the sick and you did all if you do all the right things, then I will save you. And that really messed me up when I was a young believer in Jesus. When people tried to talk about grace, and I'd say, Yeah, but in Matthew twenty five, if we don't do these things, we're gonna be goats. And we're not gonna go into the kingdom. So it's all about the deeds, right? Listen. Matthew 25 is not a judgment of salvation. It has nothing to do with a judgment for salvation. Matthew 25 is a judgment of the nations. Jesus is very clear about this. And He's saying the degree to which a particular nation cares for these brothers of mine, who's that? It's Israel. That is to say, during this time of tribulation, the nations that actually care for or about the Jewish people are the nations that that then will be the sheep ushered into the kingdom. You know there will be nations in the kingdom. The Bible lists them out. Read Isaiah. It talks about different nations that are actually going to be there. Egypt is going to be in the kingdom. Assyria is going to be in the kingdom. And you read these things and go, wow, how does that work? How does an entire nation... Well, if that nation or people within that nation of that ethnicity actually care for Israel, they are ushered into the kingdom. But understand this. These nations are going to come in and they're going to need feeding. Many of them are going to be broken vessels. Battered and bruised at the end of the tribulation. Note the wording that we get from Jesus in Revelation 2.9. 
He says, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them. He shall shepherd them. Feed as a shepherd them with a rod of iron. That is the absolute truth. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. These vessels are already broken. And they need shepherding. And they need feeding. And they need tending and and caring. And that is your job. That's my job coming into the kingdom. Teaching, training, direction in righteousness. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now let me get practical, really practical here. What are you going to bring to the table? What do you have to offer His kingdom? Thyatira's biggest problem, their problem that fed their idolatry and it embraced paganism, was the same works-based problem of Catholicism, works-based righteousness. Or by the way, for that matter, any church. I was not raised Catholic, but I had a lot of legalistic tendencies that I was taught or that I embraced. Because I wanted to make sure I was saved. So if I do this or that or the other, if I keep this list, if I make sure I memorize these things, then I'll be among the saved. And and, and we're missing it. Any Christian who thinks their assurance is based on their deeds is sorely mistaken. Deeds. Deeds, good or bad, will not get you into the kingdom, nor will they keep you out of the kingdom. Because it is not your deeds. Note that in the letter to Thyatira, Jesus uses that word more than any other letter. He uses the word deeds five times. Look at them real quickly. Verse 19. I know your deeds, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Look further down in verse 22. He says... I'm going to throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And then the end of verse 23, I'll give to each one of you according to your deeds. Hey, you want to be judged based on your deeds? You got it. He's got books. We'll open up the books. Revelation 20, books of deeds. Books that maintain everything that anybody has ever done in their entire life. Do you want to be judged based on that? (laughs) I don't. I just assume those things were erased. There's also the Lamb's Book of Life, which is not a book of deeds, it's a book of grace. It's a book of faith. And note that four times he references deeds, and then the fifth time is verse 26, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds. My deeds. The fifth time. Five is the number of what in the Bible? Grace. Grace. He who keeps my deeds. Deeds. He says in verse 25, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And here's the problem. When I ask the question, what do you have for the kingdom? What are you bringing to the table of the kingdom? Far too many Christians will say, I got nothing. I've got nothing to give. I can't sing, so I can't be on the worship team. I can't preach, so I can't do that. I don't have this ability or that ability. I see people who are far more godly than I am. What do I have to bring? I don't have anything. And he says, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. Guess what? What you have to offer are his deeds, not yours. What you have to bring to the table, the overcomer of the Thyatira religion of the Thyatira mentality, the overcomer is the one who keeps the deeds of Jesus. Don't freak out that you don't have the right ingredients or or the most righteous recipe to bring to the table of the kingdom. Just bring His deeds. Do you realize Jesus tells a parable in which there's a wedding feast and the wedding clothes are provided. Just put them on. Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, talking about the church says it was given to her, the church, the bride of Christ, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, and the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Which tells you what? It tells us that even our righteous acts are given to us. That the good things I do in the name of Jesus, He's doing through me. It's as Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
Well, why should he get all the credit? Because he's the one who gives me the good deeds. He's the one who gives me the righteous deeds. He says, keep my deeds. Don't, don't mess with your deeds. Your deeds are pagan. Your deeds are religion. Your deeds will fall apart. Keep my deeds. And greatest of all the deeds of Jesus is what He accomplished, the finished work at the cross of Calvary. The great deed, His sacrifice. Hold fast, He says, until I come. Cardinal Bellarmine. I call him Cardinal Bellicose Bellarmine. He spurned the cross when he said the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. You realize that phrase is heretical. To say assurance is a heresy is in of itself a heresy because my insurance was blood bought by Jesus on the cross of Calvary. That's assurance, my friends. Well, how can you be so sure? I have faith. And that is the simple answer. It's not heresy after all. My assurance comes by faith in God's grace. As Habakkuk said in chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right in him. But God says, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. That's quoted three times in the New Testament. My righteous one will live by faith. Not by deeds. Not by his hard work. Not by all of his efforts. In 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul said, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. What are you entrusting to him, Paul? His deeds. Faith in God's grace. Faith in the one sacrifice of Jesus. Now, I know what, what my more legalistic friends would say to this. They'd say, oh, so you're saying I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is show up. Believe. Just have faith. And, and then I don't, I don't have to be involved in this or that or the other. Hey, listen, you don't have to do any more than what faith and the love of Christ compels you to do. I didn't have to rearrange the furniture and vacuum this last week in our living room to get ready for this coming week. I didn't have to do that. I could have sat there and played games on my phone. Why'd you do that? I love my family. This is something I could do to help. I didn't have to load up the car and take all the stuff out of our storage room to the dump yesterday. Why'd you do that, Rick? Because I love my family and I wanted to help. I wanted to be part of stuff. I didn't have to show up at ballet yesterday morning with my daughters, put on my little shoes. I'm not even going to tell you the rest. I did it because I love them. And it wasn't work. It was joy. And anything we do for someone we love, we do because we love them. We're not doing it because we're trying to prove ourselves. Husbands, are you trying to prove your love to your wife? Well, I emptied the dishwasher this morning. I should tell you something right there. Idiot. (laughs) See, I learned these things over the years. There was a time in our married life where I'd say, hey, I vacuumed the house for you. And Cheryl would say, for me? And I'd go, oh, I got that one wrong. <laughs> we do what we do because He first loved us. Listen, here's the practicality. When we come in to rule and reign with Jesus, He has the right to judge. We don't. You know how this affects you right now? You want to be a, a ruler? for the kingdom shepherd people just shepherd let him be the judge you care you feed you love people the way he loved you when we come into the kingdom and he says you're going to shepherd them with a rod of iron that's what we're going to be doing the practice right now is for them we're going to care for people in the government the kingdom the rule and reign of Jesus, our ruling and reigning is going to be tending to other people, pastoring, shepherding, loving, teaching. That's what we're being prepared for. That's what His followers do. You leave the judgment to Him. You leave the rod to Him. And you just love people. Shepherd priests in the kingdom of Christ. And you know, there's one last thing He says here and we'll be done. He says, and I will give Him the morning star. 
What's the morning star? Peter hinted at it already in 2 Peter 1.19. We have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What's that? What's he talking about there? I will give you the morning star. Well, the morning star, Jesus says in Revelation 22, verse 16, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'll give you the morning star, he says. I'll give you myself. But, but listen, this is so cool. God made a promise to Israel. He said to Israel in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Isn't that great? You just see the joy. Israel is looking for the sun of righteousness, the dawn of the kingdom. But listen, the morning star comes before the sun of righteousness. The morning star rises before the sun of day. That's the promise. It's a promise of being with Jesus before the day breaks, meaning what? It's the rapture of the church. To receive the morning star is to instantly be in His presence, and that is the rapture. Feinberg in his commentary said, Israel awaits the sun of righteousness. The church looks for the morning star. We look to be caught up into the presence of Jesus Christ so forever to be with Him, the morning star. What a promise. Let's stand up together. To rule as shepherd servants, as shepherd priests. To be caught up to Jesus, to to be in the presence of the morning star himself. These are the promises to Thyatira. Why is he telling Thyatira, I will will give you rule because it's a different kind of rule than they understood previously. I'm going to bring you in as shepherds now. You're going to learn to rule in the same way that I rule. And the morning star I'm going to give you myself. You know, this promise of the kingdom goes way back. It's actually first a promise to Israel. It went out to David. David wanted to build God a house. He was so excited. He was going to build a temple. And God's like, whoa there little buckaroo. Slow down. I'm going to build you a house. And God lays out through the prophet Natan in 2 Samuel chapter 7, lays out not David's plans, but his plans for a kingdom. And he tells David, I'm going to give you through your son, through one of your seed, I'm going to cause him to sit on the throne and rule and reign forever. A promise of an eternal kingdom. Jesus said, I am the root, I came before, and I am the descendant, I came after, David. Jesus will rule and reign in this promised kingdom. I just want to end with you hearing what David says. He he starts to realize there is an eternal kingdom promised, and his reaction, his response, I think ought to be ours. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, David says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also to the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. The custom of man. This is what we all do. We all look ahead. We all look to the future. We all wonder what's coming. He says again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you. According to all we have heard with our ears. He who has an ear, let him hear. The good work and the good deeds done on this earth are done by none other than Jesus Christ in and through His people. And those are what we bring to the kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, it's what You've done. It's what You served up before us. It's Your love and it's Your teaching and it's Your care and Your compassion and Your healing. It's all that we see in You, Lord Jesus. 
And You invite us to follow after You. And it's Your cross, Your sacrifice that was perfect. Lord, we can't add anything to it. Help us not to try. I pray, Father, that among us this morning what You will do is increase faith and intensify our love that by faith and by love we would then live lives not just pleasing to You, though they will be, but lives that shepherd others toward the kingdom. Lives that feed others the truth. Lives that love those who don't know You. Lives that care for those who are lost. Our entire motivation, we've said this so many times, Lord, our entire motivation to serve is Your grace. Thank You for grace. Thank You for amazing grace. Father, intensify our love. Increase our faith. And keep us looking for the day. Help us to hold fast what we have until You come. In Jesus' name, Amen.